Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 15th, 2022, and if it ever was a day when facts matter, when the truth matter, it's today. Um, we're in the midst of an international crisis, as you all know. Uh, the Russians, uh, Mr. Putin, announced his quote-unquote pullback from the Ukraine, uh, and yesterday's New York Times suggested that Biden warns that the Ukraine invasion is still possible. He was slightly skeptical that Putin was telling the truth. And indeed, it doesn't seem as if he was. Uh, Financial Times reports today that the Moscow talk of de-escalation in the Ukra- on the Ukrainian border has been met with skepticism. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reiterates that, quoting the head of NATO, suggesting that actually Russia is continuing to build up its forces uh, near the Ukraine. So truth is a slippery thing, but of course, both those things can't be true. Russia can't be de-escalating and at the same time building up uh, its forces. Um, And the New York Times with this image of a a funfair, I'm not quite sure how appropriate that is, in Kiev, says that there is no sign of a Russian pullback. This um, issue of Putin and the truth he tells will be discussed later today, actually in a couple of hours, when I talk to Angela Stent, uh, the Brookings Institute authority on uh, Putin's Russia and the author of Putin's World. But this misunderstanding, this disagreement on facts, perhaps even an, an epistemological disagreement, can of course be potentially incredibly dangerous. Back in 1983, uh, there was a, in the height of the Cold War, there was a, 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 what Wikipedia calls a Soviet nuclear false alarm incident in which um, Soviet data suggested that, uh, that the Americans had launched um, an intercontinental ballistic missile. This, of course, could have resulted in, in an apocalypse, in the annihilation of Uh, not just the United States and Russia, but indeed the whole world, if it hadn't been for a man called Stanislav Petrov, who was a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Defense Forces, who realized that this data was actually wrong. How do I know about that? I actually read it um, in a book by David Robert Grimes, uh, a book called The Irrational Ape why we fall for disinformation, conspiracy theory, and propaganda. I'm thrilled that uh, David has a new book out, uh, Good Thinking, um, Why Flawed Logic Puts All of Us at Risk, and How Critical Thinking Can Save the World. Uh, It's a very timely book, as his irrational ape was. uh, And I'm thrilled that David is joining us from Dublin, where he lives. Uh, You were just in the United States, David. You were telling me um, in California. Now you're back in Dublin. Uh, Do you agree with me that today's informational spat, if you like, between Putin and the West underlines, reiterates the importance of facts? 
I absolutely do. And it also reiterates something, I suppose, more insidious than just facts and, and fictions. We are seeing a dark renaissance of propaganda. Back in the 1980s, when there was propaganda wars and, and the then Soviet empire was, was absolutely superb at it, they didn't even have the internet. With the dawn of the World Wide Web and social media, it has made it so much easier for dishonest actors to run all sorts of uh, malicious propaganda, to cast doubt, to, you know, ferment dissent. And we're seeing an awful lot of that, even in the informational wars that are currently going on around the, uh, the, the Ukraine issue. And we're even seeing that with there was uh, American intelligence came out with a report saying that there was an attempted false flag to engineer right, sympathy yeah. for the Russian invasion. stuff is particularly it's fascinating because it's who knows who to believe and who knows whether if you have enough false flag bluffing, at what point does a false, false flag become another excuse for war? Who knows where the real truth is? Where the line is drawn is, is very, and, it, and one of the things about propaganda and disinformation in general is that the one of those negative effects is it doesn't necessarily convince us one way or the other. What it tends to do is make us apathetic. It tends to make us disengage and go, well, I don't know what the, you know, so that is oddly a shield that um, malicious actors can use. Because if you are disengaged, you can sleepwalk in a form of inertia into going along whatever narrative is there because it's physically exhausting to unpack it. Like you say there, to work out who's telling the truth is a huge amount of cognitive effort. And this is why this mode of propaganda of, a, of, of what's called the Russian fire hose um, to pump out lots of multi-volume propaganda that's often conflicting, it just makes us tired and disengaged. But that do you, is uh, David, do you see this as the, the core, and I use this word carefully, ideological truth of Putin's Russia? I had the London-based writer, my old friend Peter Pomerantsev, on the show a year or two ago. I actually talked to him in, in some detail about this issue. Uh, he wrote a very brilliant book called This Is Not Propaganda, defining Putin's regime around this attack on truth. So the Russians no longer believe in universal communism, but they do believe or their international strategy is of chipping away at our epistemolog epistemological certainty. Do you agree with Pomerantsev that this is the core aim of Putin's Russia? I wouldn't go as far as to say that because I, I wouldn't be a necessary expert in, in Russian politics the same way the, the author is. But what I will say is that demagogues have always used that um, informational ambiguity to control things. The Office of Strategic Services in World War II did a psychological profile of Adolf Hitler. And that's when they coined the phrase big lie, that he would always be trying to instill um, anger and distraction and, and disassociation. And it leaves people in fact where they don't really believe anything. And that is a space where terrible things can happen. Because if we no longer have a grounding on what is true and what is not, that only opens the doors for, for people like Putin to create, substitute whatever reality they want us to believe into it. And I'm, I'm not saying this is solely a Putin thing. It's not. It's in the blueprint of any form of tyranny. If you can make people unsure of what to believe, it is much easier to control them. Yeah, I'm interested. I, I, I'm going to be talking, as I said, to Angela Stent in a couple of hours. 
whether she sees Putin's world, the centrality of it as disinformation. I wonder it's be- whether it's because, in contrast, say, with the, the Orwellian notions of 1984, or at least the leader believed in himself uh, and a set of ideas, Putin and other authoritarian leaders, they just believe in power. They don't believe in truth. They believe that truth simply reflects people's interest. And that um, is, a, is a very chilling notion. And it might, in some senses, be as true for Trump and Erdogan and certainly uh, Bolsonaro and Orban in Hungary as it is for Putin in Russia and even Xi in China. No one believes in communism or socialism or fascism or nationalism anymore. They simply believe in self-interest. Uh, it's probably always been that way to an extent. I mean, it's easy. If you want to have, say, a fundamental democracy and all these things that we, we implicitly consider positive, it requires a huge amount of societal trust. We need to trust our institutions. We need to believe that they're telling us the truth. Um, if you fracture that, you end up where a kind of a strongman situation where the only only truth is power. And that's that's something I, I think that we could risk sleepwalking into. And we're seeing it. Indeed, you mentioned some of the regimes around the world where this probably is occurring. Um, but I think what we've learned in the last few years is our own democracies, which we've you know, often, you know, put up there as exemplars, have those fractures in them too, and they need to be stemmed very quickly. I mean, we can see the uh, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th as maybe the, the epitome of what happens when disinformation is, mm. you know... Well, we're we're, we're going to come to that. I wonder, um, is the heart of good thinking uh, in your book um, and in your own thinking, uh, David, is it science or philosophy or are they the, the same thing? The reason I ask is I remember at the beginning of the Republic, Socrates begins his defense or sort of creation of the idea of philosophy in a reaction to a conversation he has with a man called Thrasymachus, who was a kind of Athenian version of Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin, who simply believed in the idea of power. For you, is good thinking philosophy? Is it science or are they the same things? It's it's interesting because Richard Dawkins, or sorry, Richard Dawkins, Richard Feynman, the uh, famous physicist. Yeah, I got, that, I got Dawkins. I, I had him all lined up for you, and, and then you changed the No, name. no, no. I, I, made, I actually made a mistake. I met Richard Feynman, but my brain is obviously... No, I'm strange. teasing you, because uh, Dawkins but, always comes up in these sorts of stuff. Always does, doesn't he? He just casts such a long shadow. But one of the things about... It, there was, for a long time in science, a kind of disparaging look towards philosophy, and I think that's entirely wrong. I think that understanding how people perceive the world, how we think, needs to be not just through the lens of science, but also inherently feeds into philosophy, but also, even more importantly, psychology. Because every time we look at the world, um, we like to think that we are impartial observers, arbiters of truth. And we're not. We're bringing all our own baggage. We're bringing all our own prejudices, all our own lenses there. And the only way you can strip away those lenses to see what's really underneath is with a mixture of science, philosophy, and, and understanding our own psychology. And the genesis of good thinking was to take these things and go, where do we go wrong? How do we end up in situations where, you know, we, we make terrible choices or we don't follow evidence? 
And it's very easy for scientists like myself to sometimes say, oh, it's because we don't understand science. But we've seen through the pandemic that science is often ambiguous or transient or not necessarily the you know as clear cut as we political david i mean the other big headline today of course is the stuff that's happening in canada uh protesters in ottawa uh, anti-vaccine protesters are facing arrest um uh there's a new york times piece about the quote-unquote fractious collaboration i guess anti-vax people uh truck drivers other right-wing fringe people um uh, the, this anti-vax movement in, 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 in Canada, and we certainly can't blame that on Putin, now is entering its third week. Uh, Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, has even threatened to freeze anti-mandate protesters' bank accounts. So this is happening outside Russia. This is affecting Absolutely. our broader culture, our politics, isn't it? Yeah. We're not immune to it. And it, it, it's a mistake that we, we often look at history or events happening around the world and go, could never happen here. Of course it could. And it's because we're humans and we are subject to the same psychological biases, the same sources of uh, mistake making that, that, that has gone on through history. I mean, one of the reasons in this book, I use a lot of stories. And the reason I use a lot of stories is because a lot of the problems we're facing aren't new. Sure, they've been exacerbated by the current informational landscape that the internet has brought to us. But the flaws in our thinking, the way we get... Um, fooled by poor rhetoric. And that's Bloor's F-L-A-W rather than O-O-R, right? They're yes, just... yes. For, like the, um, the, 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 those mistakes, those that errors. That's some hackles, though. You're beginning to sound a little a bit like Dawkins, flaws <laughs> in our thinking, meaning that when you, when you think, when you're influenced by things that might not be true, is your thinking flawed? Well, I would go back to a philosopher to answer that, actually. One of my favorite philosophers is W.V. Quine, and he coined a phrase called the web of belief. And this is the idea that all of our beliefs are interconnected. If you pull on one thread, inadvertently, you're going to pull another one. And a good example of this is with conspiracy theorists. I do a bit of research on, on conspiracy theories. And one of the things that you find is that conspiracy theorists tend to not have one conspiracy belief. They tend to have lots of them. And there's a kind of reason for that. Let's say you can accept that there is a giant international conspiracy and you pull your web just enough to allow that thing to go through it. But you've also pulled all the other threads and you become more likely then to accept other conspiracies. So one of the problems is our beliefs don't exist in isolation. They exist interconnected to our to the information landscape we live in and also our existing beliefs. And I think that's where a danger lies. So I know it sounds like sometimes I'm asked, oh, well, what, what, what's the harm of people believing one relatively innocuous uh, conspiracy theory? Innocuous, not innocuous, right? Yes. In, yes that was you. a Freudian slip, David. Absolutely. Innocuous. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I've been, I've been writing about vaccination too much recently. You're dead right. So, um, but that's, you know, something that's seemingly benign oftentimes is not because it has the capacity to pull on another thread later on. Yeah, I I like the idea of the thread, although that, in a sense, is also a kind of conspiracy theory, suggesting that one untruth is connected to another and that anyone who believes in one conspiracy is somehow bound up in in many other conspiracies. One of the conspiracies that's in the news is the Sandy Hook one. Um, Terrible conspiracy, a heartbreaking one in which people claim that the 
Sandy Hook mass murder of, of young children was somehow either didn't exist or was uh, some sort of false flag Putin style nonsense. Uh, the headline this week was that the Sandy Hook families settle, and I again, again, settle, I use that word carefully with the gunmaker for who, who, who made the gun for the killer for $73 million. And um, this seems to have been a, some sort of challenge to the Sandy Hook conspiracy theories, perhaps most personified by Alex Jones. But I wonder whether that's the way to fix it, to, to fine these people or freeze their bank accounts, uh, as Justin Trudeau is suggesting. Uh, David, after the break, I want to come back and, and, and talk about fixes, about uh, how to actually fight back against conspiracies like Sandy Hook, like some of the anti-vaxxer nonsense, although maybe some of it's true, and of course, like Putin. So we're going to take a 60-second break, and then we'll be back with David Robert Grimes, the author of Good Thinking. We've outlined bad thinking. Now we've got to fix, figure out how we're going to reestablish good thinking at the center of the world. We'll be back in about 60 seconds, everyone, a very truthful 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenan. We are back with David Robert Grimes, the author of Good Thinking, Why Flawed Logic Puts Us All at Risk and How Critical Thinking Can Save the World. David, how are we going to think critically again? What is your fix for all this? One of the problems is that we are not intuitively people that do a lot of analytical thinking. Uh, we rely on quick and easy heuristics because it's cognitively less expensive. So while we all have the capacity... Say that again. Uh, this word heuristics might be one that not everyone knows. That's a good point. 
So a heuristic is like a shortcut, a rule of thumb. So for example, the classic example that's often given is if you're walking somewhere and you hear a rustling in the grass, you jump around startled because it might be a snake or a predator. It's probably just the wind, but the heuristic to react like it might be a predator keeps you safe and doesn't require much mental energy. You don't realize that you're doing it. It's almost automatic. That's a good example of heuristic. And they can solve a lot of problems for us and we use them a lot of the time. The problem is that for more nuanced, complicated problems, whether it's vaccination or geopolitics, our gut feeling, our rules of thumb, our general reactions are often not enough. And we need to rely on slower, more analytical thinking to do things like that. So one of the first ways we can get around that, and I will always argue there is no substitute for us learning the basic tenets of critical thinking. Anyone can learn it. Um, it's not something that's reserved a Promethean fire that no one else can have. It's, it's available to everyone. Uh, but it has to be thought and learnt, which I hope the book kind of touches on. <laughs> is it, do you take Philosophy 101? Do you read your book? How do you learn this stuff? I think the first thing you do is if you ever want to correct errors, you work out where you're making them in the first instance. And oftentimes identifying, and, they, and there's the nice thing is there's good evidence for this because this has been tested. If people are shown the kind of reasoning mistakes they make or the rhetorical mistakes they make, they become less likely to make them, even in other uh, contexts. So if you suddenly learn the skeleton of the kind of error that you're making, or that you've seen. And this is why in the book, I told it with uh, stories from history, like some of them bizarre and some of them, the comical to the catastrophic. And the reason I did that is once you see it, and once you see that pattern, it's like, um, it's like patterns in music. Once you hear a certain chord progression, you hear it everywhere it comes up. And it's the same with reasoning errors is, is a big thing, because they are, they are logical blocks that you see in a lot of arguments. But David, don't we want to believe in if not lies, untruth. Aren't we all fabulists of one kind or another? You have uh, some notes in your book about Theranos, the big Silicon Valley fraud. Uh, fraud. Um, Elizabeth Holmes perpetrated on investors and she hopefully will end up in jail. But I saw a piece this morning about how half of private investors think other startups may be just as bad as Theranos, in other words, just as dishonest, just as fraudulent, but they're private investors and they're still putting their money into this thing. We want to believe in this. And if only half are as bad, then that's the nature of it. it, it isn't the world itself a web of lies? To an extent, you're absolutely correct. It's um, it's a it's a hell of a story, the, the Theranos one. But you're right. I mean, that a lot of things are built on fabulation and, and, and wishful thinking. You could argue that most investment is essentially sanitized gambling. I'm, I would, I would probably I wouldn't even call it sanitized. <laughs> probably I'm, not. I'm sanitary. I, I wouldn't exactly have the highest opinion of, I mean, I, I have no problems with fools and their money being soon parted, except that it can have such a knock on effect because other things are built on it. But putting, putting that aside, you're right. We all have, I mean, Paul Simon said it best when he said, all lies in jest, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. And I think we've really seen that during lockdown or during like the, the pandemic, because you've actually had, for example, people wanted to follow the science and do what they thought was scientific, or that's what they said. But you've seen, say something on Twitter or, or online, you will find different groups 
putting different people on the pedestal of experts and then following them. So you'll find people that support, say, the Great Barrington Declaration, which say lockdowns are a terrible idea. And they have experts there, but are those experts being honest? That's a hard question. You'll have exact same on the other side and people will cherry pick things that suit them. This is a form of motivated reasoning. It's the realization that we often emote first and reason later. So emotionally, if we feel a certain way about something, um, we, we then try to justify that feeling. I think what's really important to get across is that there is no harm in us being wrong. The only weakness is if we refuse to change our mind when the evidence demands it. It's hard to change our mind. We live in a culture where we're told not to flip-flop, where we're told to stick right, to our if you listen to the, the COVID headlines, it seems as if we're supposed to change our mind all the time. The Washington Post had a piece today about the coronavirus is here to stay. Now we have a toolkit to live with it, antivirals, monoclonal antibodies, self-testing and vaccines. But a few months ago, we were told that uh, that's not true, that we can't just live with it. So scientists haven't done a great job in, in, in the COVID times. I mean, I'm a big fan of Anthony Fauci. A lot of people hate him politically. But it, science changes its mind as well. There's no absolute truths in, in science, especially when it's coming to something as fluid and ever-changing as COVID. Absolutely. And, that, and that's the thing. Science is not some bunch of uh, arcane priests in robes making decrees. Science reflects the evidence base, and, and that can be disconcerting for people because they think it's unchanging and constant. Actually, as evidence rolls in, particularly in something as fluid as COVID, the recommendations should be changing. But I think what we fail to communicate well is that this is a natural part of evolving science, that these things are not um, edifices that remain forever. They constantly evolve. And indeed, that happens in all avenues of science. Just maybe this has been the first time a lot of people have been exposed to it on such a rapid level. Um, the science that has happened has happened so quickly. I mean, we've never had a vaccination developed uh, more rapidly, which is great. But at the same time, everything we've known has had to be updated as it goes. And I think we've done a very poor job of explaining to people that that is the normal and laudable. We meaning who? We have done a bad job. The media, well, the New York I, Times, the BBC, you and I. Who, who has done it? Uh, uh, well, there, there, there is blame to share here. Okay, And there's blame to share from, by the way, I will put scientists up there as, as a collective and say that we haven't done a great job in the communication side of it. Um, media well, everything is communications, but then I also suggest, David, that communications is a, is itself a kind of truth. I, I had the Washington, uh, the sorry, the Wall Street Journal media reporter Eric Schwartzel on the show uh, last week. He's written a book about how Hollywood is being taken over by the Chinese for one political reason or another. I mean, movies reflect political interests, books, shows like this. There are no absolute truths when it comes to reporting on the world, are there? There are not, no. What you're always trying to do in, in good reporting, though, is reduce the, the instances of bias uh, to, to maintain the best level of impartiality you can. So in other but words, if we're talking about a Hollywood film that seemed rather sympathetic to one aspect of China or another, we would have to understand the investment of Chinese banks in that particular studio or something like that? Well, that could be a potential conflict of interest. And I mean, again, it gets complicated with the artistic side. Um, 
I mean, some people might laugh and say Hollywood movies being artistic, but of course they are artistic. Uh, um, Did the Chinese put any money into this book? Uh, they have not, no. Um, if they wish to, though, I'm always open to negotiation. No, but um, I'm not sure they'd be very keen on a book like that. Because there's actually I, I, I talked a bit at Mao's China and the Great Sparrow campaign and the fact that a bad policy decision based on ignoring the evidence led to the death of up to 15 to 60 million people. So I can't imagine they'll be overly happy about that. Um, yeah, and that your story. stories, David, are great. The, the Bad Sparrow campaign is tragic story but fascinating you end with a, a fascinating story again a story i didn't know about uh, of a man called alfred russell wallace and a bet he had about whether or not the world was flat uh scientific american called this wallace's woeful wager why do you end with this particular wager i i actually ended with this uh, almost as a reminder of myself so the last chapter is obviously a summation but there's a very important lesson uh, to choose our battles, right? When we're going out there, um, and the reason I wrote, I wrote it for twofold. Wallace thought that he had an easy bet to prove the world was 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 spherical. But he looks the a little problem. bit like Darwin. He's sort of part of that Darwinian scientific. He's the co-discoverer of evolution, so it's it was definitely a, a a good time for men with fancy beards. But I I think one of the problems is if you are dealing with people, and the reason I told the story is what happened with Wallace is he put a bet to prove with a, a young earth creationist that the, the earth was, was, was spherical and he proved it, but the guy wouldn't pay up. And then he became increasingly aggressive and violent and eventually ended up in prison for threatening Wallace's life. Wallace's mistake was to think that the person he was dealing with was acting in good faith. If a Twitter troll shows up at you yelling random abuse, you are wasting your time if you sit there and go, let's discuss this rationally. I, I'm, I'm all for positive conversations and they have to happen and it has to be discussion is really healthy. But you also have to have those discussions in good faith. So it was a reminder to focus your efforts where they will land the most. But also sometimes the most important person whose mind you need to change is your own. Sometimes it's your position that needs to be adjusted. And there's no shame and no harm in that. We should become a lot more accepting as a society of people evolving and changing their mind, including ourselves. And we're changing our mind. You, you've just come back, David, from the United States. You know here we're obsessed with, still with January 6th. Um, one of the headlines in all the papers in the Post today was that Biden ordered the Trump White House visitor logs to be turned over to the Jan 6th committee. But there's this assumption that there is some essential truth in January 6th. Um, Politico says there's never going to be a, bar, a bipartisan deal to stop the Trumpian election subversion because probably the truth of January 6th, like the truth of the causes of the First World War or even the truth of Ukraine, they're complicated things. They're never going to be known, absolutely, are they? They're multifactorial and they're complicated. And let's be fair... Um, there's a strong disincentive from certain parties to, to, to ever to ever investigate that too deeply. So, look, I don't know how that's going to pan out. I don't think there's any harm in investigating it because obviously it was a travesty what we saw and it was an abuse of the founding democratic principles of, of the United States. Um, whether they will ever be able to really ascribe blame for that in a kind of satisfying way, I, I don't know. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at it either. I mean, 
it's too easy to let things go. That was such an assault on de- on democratic norms that it does need to be looked at, if nothing else, to learn how we can maybe avoid it happening again. Yeah, Even- but this, this utilitarian thinking, David, you know, why flawed logic puts us all at risk and how critical thinking can save the world suggests that there are simple truths, or not simple truths, but there are truths that can save us from our current dilemmas. Uh, Earlier this week, I had Eric Protzer on the show, who's written a book about seizing back economic populism. But he was very unconvincing. The only thing he could come up with in political terms was some sort of Macron-like solution in America, which is unconceivable and totally uh, impossible. Truth, certainly when it comes to politics, doesn't isn't very reassuring. I mean, they're not good bedfellows, and they never have been. Populist argument against capitalism, against certain racial groups or gendered groups or religious groups may not be true. But how else are we supposed? Is there an alternative to this sort of scientific or technocratic response? See, I I don't really want necessarily a technocratic response. Here's what I believe. Um, and, and I think there's a problem, an implicit problem that you've actually just touched on there. I think we always expect people to go, what's the quick fix? How do we fix this? I honestly don't think there's any quick fix. I think it's going to take generations of becoming less wrong each iteration and steering it so that maybe 40 years in the future we'll have a solution. We look for overnight solutions to problems that we've had for literally millennia. And it's important to find them, but I think people get frustrated with that because if a problem isn't solved instantaneously, they go, oh, this is a waste of time. Well, actually what you need is a steady approach to solving the problem that's evidence-based. Um, but I think we also need to be realistic about timeframes. I talk about teaching critical thinking and instilling a nature of that, but I know we're not gonna wake up tomorrow and suddenly have uh, nations of critical thinkers. This is something we put into place to, to, to harvest that seed 40 years down the line. David, um, you're associated with Stanford University, and oh, um, which is a just, just, I just work with people there. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not paid by them in any way. Uh, well, you, you were just out there, heart of Silicon Valley. What about the tech fix? We had Amy Webb on the show earlier this week on how synthetic biology can change our lives. A synthetic biology that's kind of rooted around artificial intelligence technology too. Amy seems ambivalent about the benefits, the upside, but could, if we have chips put in our head or our hands, can that fix this? Can we use technology to make ourselves more reasonable, to think better? You see, I've, 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 I've definitely heard that argument from Silicon Valley types, like, oh, we'll, we'll invent super fact-checking or we'll do something like that. I, I genuinely think that the gray and white matter we have in our head when properly trained will do a lot of that work for us. I also think there's always a danger in outsourcing and hoping technology will will, will fix a human foible because that technology is great at augmenting and helping things. But again, it's a safe of garbage in, garbage out. If you don't really think about what the problem is and what the problem needs, no matter how fancy a solution you engineer, it's not actually going to achieve what you think it is. So if I think these are problems of how we think and how we reason, that and there is really good evidence that we can fix that by becoming aware of what we do 
and giving ourselves and other people the freedom to update their views and their priors uh, when they are pointed out to them. David, uh, you, you, you brought up um, Richard Dawkins earlier in our conversation. Dawkins is controversial with Christopher Hitchens and others for attacking the God idea. Um, is that the real problem? I looked up God on Wikipedia. Um, it says in monotheistic thought, God is usually conceived as a supreme being, creator and principal object of faith. Is this the ultimate delusion? Do we need to get rid of these God fallacies, these God stories, if we are to really start thinking in a coherent way? I'm not so sure about that. And, and actually, in the book, I kind of avoided touching on that. because Why, though? Isn't that the heart of the problem? Not necessarily. In fact, we don't have great evidence. There is one fundamental heart of the problem. Um, for example, there is Stephen Jay Gould's model of non-overlapping magisteria. The God problem, if you, I, I'm personally not a believer, um, but I have worked with scientists, very good ones, who are. And when we have conversations about it, most of the ones I speak to say very simply that their belief in God, it's not really within the realm of testable um, hypotheses. If something isn't testable, it's not science. So they never, they, they would be in error if they tried to prove God or they tried to say, therefore, science says this. Um, the way they square that circle is they just go, this is something I feel, um, but I can't prove, and I would never try to prove because it's not something that's in the scientific domain. To me, that's probably relatively benign. I think the problem that we see in the States in particular is when people try to take their religious beliefs and insist that policy be made around them. That is a problem. That's the same if you decide that everything should be based around your ideology or your particular prejudices. That is not a sound basis for, say, making policy. Uh, that can be a problem. But the actual belief itself, are we all intrinsically a little bit believers? I don't know. It's fascinating. But here's something I say a lot that people get really upset with. We need to do more research because we don't know the answer to that question. Well, I don't know where we need to do more research into whether or not God exists. Maybe we need to oh, no, do more why, research. Why we believe. Like, that's right. what I'd like to... The psychology Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe we need to do more research into... The future, we had Roman Krasnarich, the British-based public intellectual on the show about how we become good ancestors to future generations. Krasnarich is uh, an environmentalist, I think, first and foremost. Do you think to be good ancestors to future generations, uh, David, we need to fix this truth problem? Yes. We need to absolutely. start thinking better. And that we do. And we owe it like, look, we are facing existential, existential threats. We've talked about the, the 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 geopolitical problems in Russia, but we haven't even touched on climate change. We haven't even touched on the fact that we have we've had a world pandemic and we still have up to twenty five percent of certain populations who don't believe it was even real. These are problems with our media, our digital literacy, um, our rationing, our reasoning, and they affect everyone. So I think if we want to do our our our, our people that come after us a favor. We have to start putting things in place now that will make us less likely to fracture, less likely to be under the whim of demagogues and charlatans and fools in the future going forward, because everything is as existential right now. And that is the best thing we can do, I think, for our children, is to get a little bit more savvy in how we think, how we reason, and to teach the next generations and the generations subsequent to that, those skills. And I know I sound like I'm harping on about that, but I genuinely believe that very strongly. 
You genuinely believe it, David. What else should people be reading in addition to your um, new book, Good Thinking, Why Flawed Logic Puts Us All at Risk and How Critical Thinking Can Save the World? A, a very valuable book. Uh, are there other books that people might look at in February 2022 to I'm, become I'm better pick, ancestors? Yeah, I'm going to pick a, a very a very old one first, um, but it's a classic. Now, this was written, this is Carl Sagan's uh, The Demon Haunted World. Science is a candle in the dark. Sagan had a more science will solve everything view than me, but he, he still identified a lot of his problems long before the internet. And he, he talked about the importance of this and how we need to protect ourselves from demagoguery with that as well. Um, I, I It's a fantastic read. It's beautifully written. It, I think it came out in 95. But I would recommend anyone who wants to see the, the history of thought on these problems, pick it up. Um, and I'm very looking forward to, to reading this as well and your uh, good things but i'll have to, uh, yeah, I'll have I to get back to you on that one you'll be wasting your time on that one uh <laughs> david robert grimes real uh, honor congratulations on the new book we're ending with a, a new feature we have on keenon i'm asking all my guests to answer a very simple question in a minute or two who runs the world david i'm going to tell you who runs the world and it's the most disturbing answer you'll ever hear stochasticity runs the world we like to think that there's someone in control, someone pulling the strings, because that's weirdly comforting in a roundabout way, knowing that there's some design is comforting. The more terrifying truth is that events are often random and multifactorial and that no one is planning everything. Stuff is just happening. And fundamentally, that stochasticity, that randomness runs the world. And I think that's far more terrifying than any odious villain you could manufacture. I, personally, I understand why people like conspiracy theories when that's the alternative. Well, I'm not going to sleep tonight, David, but thank you so <laughs> much. And congratulations on the new book. We'll have you back on the show because there's so much more to talk about. So thank you so David much. Robert Grimes, the author of Good Thinking, a really interesting and important new book. Uh, keep thinking, keep reminding us of how we really can become better ancestors. Thank you so much. Thank you.